looks like they're semi-recovered from yesterday. That's good. That's good. I just have a couple quick announcements. One is this. Uh, if you are interested or plan on doing end-of-the-year giving, um, you're coming to the end of the year. Uh, you can do that online or you can do that here in person. If you do it online, if you're an online giver, if you give to the church online, you will get an automatic tax statement sent to you from uh, the company that we do our giving to already. It automatically comes to you. If not, we will get you one. Um, but just wanted to throw that out. If, if that's something you feel led to do or wanted to do, you can do that by the end of the year. You can do that on our website or you can do that in person. And uh, the other thing I wanted to remind you of is that uh, the, the office is closed this week between uh, today and, uh, and the second. And so if you were to need anything, you can call the church number. That's a cell phone. You can get a hold of me or someone else on the leadership team will be able to get in touch with you. If you were to need anything or an emergency would arise, please don't hesitate to call. You can even text that number if it's not like a dire emergency. Um, you can call or text that number. If you don't have that number, it is on the website. Uh, and I can also, if you're going to write it down, I can give it to you now. Um, but if, does anyone want to write it down? Okay, good. <laughs> it is on the website. It's listed. If you need anything, you can call that number and uh, or text it, and we can get in touch with you um, as soon as possible. That's uh, just for this week. Well, that number is the number all the time, but if you need it, anybody that's using that. Oh, there you go. 585 Journey. Um, so, yeah, if you need anything, that's the number to, uh, to get a hold of this week, to get a hold of somebody. This morning's testimony comes from our resident deaf fan, uh, Andrew, and, uh, and we're looking forward to hearing your story, brother. So thank you for being on the show with us today. All right. So uh, my name is Andrew Green. I'm sure you are all very well aware. <laughs> I've been a part of uh, what God is doing here at Journey Church since uh, January 2018. So shout out to David Clapper. Thank you for bringing me to church that one Sunday. I have not left since. <laughs> So I guess to start off, um, a majority of you kind of know the story already about my father not really being in the picture, um, so I really won't dive too much into that story because in all honesty, we'd be here for like half an hour to an hour and I'm not going to do that, so. <laughs> but you're more than welcome to come talk to me about it. Um, so I will say my mom set the example of what it means to follow Christ ever since I was a little kid. God. Um, I never had that feeling of, oh, like my earthly father has failed me, so why should I believe in my heavenly father? Um, I'm sure he's going to do the same. I never really had that feeling. I, I often counted my blessings just because um, I honestly felt like I had the greatest mom in the world and I had a great family. Um, we always had food on the table. Um, even when my father had kicked us out into the street, like we were, we always she always had provided, so um, yeah. Um, before I was at Journey, my perception of church was very different. Um, I used to be Catholic. I know, I know there's a couple of Catholics, former Catholics, whatever you want to say uh, in here. Um, you know, my perception <laughs> of church was 
okay, you go on Sunday, you need to be dressed a certain way, you know, you come together, you, you sing songs, um, you take a communion, um, you know, you listen to the priest speak, and then you go outside, you talk for a bit, catch up, you go home, you watch the Mets lose. Um, fun stuff. <laughs> it wasn't, um, it wasn't a real community, though, is how I felt it. Um, don't get me wrong, I'm very grateful for my Catholic background. Um, it helped mold me into the person that I am today, but um, when I was a lot younger, I often felt like I was doing things for the wrong reasons sometimes, and I still do. Um, I often felt that the message, at least in school, I won't really say for a church, I mean, for those of you who aren't Catholic, um, there's like a parish, so the church is a, like St. John's Church, and there's a St. John's School. So I went to St. John's School, and then you go to church on Sundays. Um, I often felt the message was like, do this, or you know, go to hell. You know, it wasn't like, it wasn't really like the correct reasons why you should follow this. Um, so when I became non-denominational and consequently came here to join church, I, that wasn't the message. It wasn't like fear-driven. You know, um, one of the other questions is. is in control and his plan is in motion. Um, that is something I have often, I would say, struggled with just because I kind of felt like if I was if I was in control, like if I, if I, I can handle it, let me just take it and I, can, I know what to do, it'll fix it. And I think a lot of us often <laughs> think that way. Um, and we, we like to say that toy to your dad and it's like, can you fix this toy? And then it's like, yeah, yeah, I'll give it to you, you can fix it. And then like a little bit while later, it's like, okay, I'm ready. And it's like, wait, no, I'm not ready yet. You know, you gotta be patient. Um, so that's, that example really stuck with me. Um, how has God shaped and molded you here? Um, I would say by shaping me more as a leader and learning what my limits are, I am so thankful being able to have tough conversations with me when needed, um, not wanting to preserve artificial harmony because that's not real harmony. It's like, oh, it's just better if I just, you know, don't say anything, okay, you know, I'm fine. It's like, no. Um, I know it's all out of love. Um, and he wants to see me grow. I know he wants to see me grow. And I know that he wants the same for all of you. Um, so yeah, talk to your pastor, talk to Meg. If you want to talk about unicorns or princesses, talk to Jay. <laughs> um, what makes you want to be a part of what God is doing here at Trinity Church? Um, honestly, it's all of you guys, the people. Everybody wants to be a part of it. Everybody wants to help. Um, I don't think there is one person in this room that's like, yeah, you know, I'm just I'm gonna want some money from you. I just like to get my money. You know, and then she's like, that's fine. You know, like, hey, remember Peg? Like, that's how she was when she started. And then examples of that, like the float, that was one example that I was just like, wow, this church is awesome. People that weren't able, everybody helped in some capacity. Even if people weren't able to go, they still helped out on a different day by putting it together at somebody's house. And then people that weren't able to do that, they helped out the day of, I 
to setting it up. Maybe they couldn't stay the whole time, so they just helped to set up and then in after church and then left. Um, yeah, volunteering, worship, tech team. There's, um, thank you, Sue. God bless you. <laughs> we need you back there. Please don't leave us. <laughs> um, the genuineness, genuineness of everybody here. I hope that's a real word. I'm sure it is. Um, everybody. I feel like everybody cares. Everybody genuinely loves everybody here. Um, and I love all of you sincerely. I do. Um, what excites you about where Journey Church is headed? Um, again, the community is nothing like I've ever seen before. Honestly, everybody genuinely cares. Um, I don't find that there's gossip in this church which can destroy any church. Um, and if there is, it's basically kind of stopped right away. And it's like, we don't do that here. Um, but yeah, I, uh, I'm very grateful for all of you. And I'm very grateful for Adam and Meg and their family. not just because of Adam and Meg or the elders, but it's because of everybody here. Um, everybody has played a part in that. Um, another example of the church being the church, just um, Martin Rowe um, opening their house to me, helping me out, trying to get a start on life, uh, a start on life. That's like, that's, that's, that's the church being the church. Um, just the amount of care that I see in everybody here so real and genuine so I thank you all for um, yeah, that's basically what I got thank you Alex if you don't mind let me uh, pray for you well, we, we pray for you extra when you wear those jerseys in church <laughs> yeah thank you for Andrew thank you for all the circumstances that were in play to bring you here, um, to be an influence for you uh, in this part of the state, in this part of the country. And, uh, God, he has a mission field that uh, I don't have, that uh, others in this room don't have. And he's called them to that. And that's one of the beautiful things about the church is that we can encourage and build up and equip one another for the mission that you've given us. And I thank you for the evidence in play that he is taking that mission field seriously. Thank you for the ways that he wants to use his gifts here, and I pray that you would continue to grow your church and uh, use Andrew and, uh, as a tool, as an instrument for, uh, for those things to happen. And God, we're grateful for you bringing people. We're grateful for what you're doing here, and we want to celebrate your work and what you're doing and who you are. And thank you for how you're doing that in everybody's and every visit. Thank you that Anna's here with us now, and uh, we get to know her too. And, uh, so God, we're, we're grateful for how you grow your church, and uh, we ask that you continue to grow. In your name, amen. You guys know Andrew's a hugger? Did you know that? Very helpful, very comforting. So, I want to read something this morning to you. This is a collection, I've read from this before, but this is a collection, it's called Valley Vision, and it's a collection of Puritan prayers. Every once in a while, I pull up my desk and, and read one, and I'm just like, oh, man, I wish 
think we all feel thoughts like this. Um, I think that they, there's obvious thought and substance put behind these words, and I want to share them with you this morning. I just want to read a passage of scripture before we get into the rest of our time in worship. Listen to this, this Puritan prayer called Joy. O Christ, all thy ways of mercy tend to and end in my delight. Thou didst weep, sorrow, suffer that I might rejoice. For my joy thou hast sent the comforter, multiplied thy promises, shown me my future happiness, given me a living fountain. Thou art preparing joy for me, and me for joy. I pray for joy, wait for joy, long for joy. Give me more than I can hold, desire, or think of. Measure out to me my times and degrees of joy at my work, business, if I weep at night, give me joy in the morning. Let me rest in the thought of thy love. Pardon for sin, my title to heaven, my future unspotted state. I am an unworthy recipient of thy grace. I often disesteem thy blood and slight thy love, but can in repentance draw water from the wells of thy joyous forgiveness. Let my heart leap towards the eternal Sabbath where the work of redemption, sanctification, preservation, and glorification is finished and perfected forever. For thou wilt rejoice over me with joy. There is no joy like the joy of heaven, for in that state are no sad divisions, unchristian quarrels, contentions, evil designs, weariness, hunger, cold, sadness, sin, suffering, persecutions, toils of duty, O healthful place where none are sick. O happy land where all are kings. O holy assembly where all are priests. How free a state where none are servants except to thee. Bring me speedily to the land of joy. First Peter 1. Peter writes this letter echoes some of those same sentiments that uh, to me seem pretty obvious that the reader was well versed in God's word as a writer of that prayer. And listen to what Peter says. We're going to look at this a little bit closer later on. But Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is unexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Now, I was thinking this week of lots of things because it's Christmas and a lot of depth there and a lot of cool meaning, but there was also a lot of stuff going on in the body where people were just under the weather and people just weren't feeling well, and whether it's COVID-related or whether it's flu season or whether it was surgeries or other things that were going on in our lives. We have a lot of people in our midst, in our body that are just afflicted right now. with the sole intent of giving her a blessing. It didn't pan out that way, as it rarely does with friends. We left with a blessing. We left with this nine-year-old sweet saint standing in her doorway with her hands raised over her head, praying a blessing, joy, 
over us. This woman who hasn't really left her house for anything but a doctor's appointment in over a year. And she wasn't elated because she had visitors. She was elated because the joy of the Lord resides in her. And she just it overflowed out of her. I just kept thinking about joy in the midst of suffering, joy in the midst of sorrow. or physical pain or ailment or whatever the situation is, joy is a choice. And it's always a right choice. So as we start our time in worship, ending out what we all came into hoping would be a much brighter year than it ended up being for a lot of reasons. Joy is a choice. So I want to remember that in my heart, and I want us to remember that in all of our Father God, the author and giver and perfecter of our faith, but also the one who provides, produces, gives in high end supply our joy. We pray for the Drakes right now who are going through COVID and just feel miserable in their home and not at all what they expected for their little girl's first Christmas, but man, joy's a choice, isn't it? And God, thank you that you've given us that. There's so many others that are going through one thing or another and don't really know all of the stories, the ins and outs. What we do know is that you are a kind and gracious God who, in a, in a mysterious and way, beautiful way that only you can do in the midst of calamity and suffering and unknown and anything else that gets thrown at us by the world or the enemy, you can produce in us joy, joy unspeakable, because although we have not seen you, we love you, we get to know you, and in that, you tend our hearts fill the soil, you allow us to feel joy. What a choice. As we worship today, as we look at your word, as we give uh, of what you've already given us, as we spend time together laughing and enjoying, and also some of us may be lamenting, and tears might flow, what we do know is none of our circumstances change your holiness. We're grateful to be in this place. We're grateful for the gift of worship. We pray that you are honored and glorified in this place today, and that you would produce much joy as you continue to till the soil of Jamie's church into what you want it to grow.
impressing upon me this Christmas season is just how much more the Christmas story means when we don't just see it as an isolated thing, when we look at it in terms of the whole big picture, the whole big story of redemption. That's one of the things that I love about our um, Journey Kids curriculum is that they're taught even in the nursery, that it's not just stories, it's one big story and it all points to Jesus. Um, and one of the things that Adam talked about on Christmas Eve during that, the service is the significance of the swaddling cloth. That even in a detail like that, that we've heard over and over again, that it's not just a coincidence, that in the Old Testament and as they raise these lambs to be used as sacrifice, when a perfect, spotless, blemish-free lamb was born. It was set aside. It was wrapped in swaddling cloths to keep it until it was used for sacrifice and for the atoning of sins. So when Jesus was born and wrapped in that swaddling cloth and laid in the manger, that was not a coincidence. That even in that, it was giving us a picture of what he really came to do. Something else that has struck me in Matthew is that when we looked last week at Matthew 2, when the Magi came to Herod and they were looking for, for the king of the Jews, they said, where is he who was born the king of the Jews? They knew who he was, and if you flip to the end of Matthew, then in Matthew 27, what was the sign that was put on the top of the cross? The sign said, Hail Jesus, king of the Jews. That from the beginning to the end of Jesus' life, it was all pointing to one thing. In Matthew 2, the Magi bowed and worshipped the child. They knew that he was, that these pagan men knew and believed that he was the son of God. In Matthew 27, after Jesus died, we see that the centurion and those with them, it says that they bowed at the cross and confessed, truly, this was the son of God. But these people saw that even what many of the religious people didn't see, that this is Jesus, that he was the Son of God. I saw a quote this week by Ruth Chow Simons that said, Jesus didn't come so we would adore, adore him at the manger, but that we would surrender at the cross. He didn't just come so we would adore him at the manger, but that we would surrender at the cross. Philippians 2 Verses 6 through 11 say, Christ Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God.
believe that something else could satisfy us, that something else could bring us joy, that something else could fix us, that something else could give us the hope and the love and the value that we're searching for. God, make our hearts believe that you're better. Soften our hearts to see you for who, they, for who you are. I pray you'd stir our affections for you. And I pray that we wouldn't just adore the baby in a manger, but that we would surrender to you at the cross, that we would acknowledge you as king and Lord of all, not just with our words, but with our with our lives, with our hearts. God, thank you that you loved us and love us that much. And I pray that we would know that and feel that today, God, and that, um, that you would use um, all things to turn our hearts to you and to conform us to your likeness. Be with Adam as he um, brings us your word. God, I pray that you would continue to transform us and that then we would go out um, and show you to the world around us. In your name I pray. one thing that I'm learning, especially through this Christmas season, this year, is to look at the beauty of the good news of Jesus. That's the joy of Christmas. Now, if you wanted to, I could walk you through all of the joyous and fun things that we did as a family leading up to Christmas and Christmas related, the things that are still in the plans or in the works. My kids' Christmas tends to get prolonged over a series of days because of traveling to grandparents' homes and things, which is great. I think this year, more than most that I can remember at least, the good news of who Jesus is has made Christmas rich, a rich experience. It made the things that maybe didn't go as well as maybe the expectations were seem as minuscule as they actually were. So the good news of Christmas is Jesus. Not just because there was a baby born and laid in a manger. That's just the start, the starting point of our understanding of the good news. That's what we celebrate at Christmas. It's God delivering this promise. And we spent all this time around Christmas time looking at this through the lens of Matthew's perspective. If you want to turn into Matthew, we're going to, we're going to be in chapter 2 today. So this story is a genealogy of Jesus. Matthew wants to show right out of the gate that Jesus is the Redeemer. He is the Messiah. He is Emmanuel. God come to dwell with us. He's the rescuer, as the Jesus Storybook Bible puts him. 
he's the one. He's here, he's finally here. Like the kids said in the video, he's here, he's here. If you didn't get a chance to watch that, I pray you do. So the angel tells Mary and tells Joseph, this is what's going to happen. They both obey God based on those things, based on what they knew of prophecy, based on what they already knew of the story of where the Messiah would come from. And again, I'll remind you that the, the angel himself, the angel himself looks at Joseph and, and calls him something significant. He says, Joseph, son of David. The angel himself is reminding this carpenter, remember where you came from. So when he looks at this carpenter and says, you're going to be the earthly father of He's also reminding him this matches up with everything that the two had taught you. They go to Bethlehem, they have a baby, the baby is wrapped in swaddling cloths, the baby's laid in a manger. I'm learning over and over and over again that none of this is just <coughs> part of this small little tidbit in the story. Well, just like God, every little thing has How can a book exist for thousands of years and we open it today and one of us or a few of us or maybe several of us will walk out and be like, I had no idea. I never really caught that. That's not because I'm such an awesome communicator. That's because God's word is incredible. And we just keep mining the depths and he keeps revealing himself to us in new and creative ways. Not because the we have gotten so advanced as society, but because God's word is living and active. So here we are at this point in the story. The wise men, the magi, have traveled in. They stopped at a palace because that's where culture houses its royalty, right? Culture always builds nice, ornate palaces for the things we think are significant. And so they go to where their mind tells them royalty is going to reside in a palace. So they go to the king. By the way, Herod would have been known as the king of Judea, the king over the region of Judea. So to come to him and say, we have come to see and worship the king of the Jews. He's like, well, welcome to my house. I'm the king of the so the wise men are saying something that is catching Herod off guard. And they find their way to this, uh, to this child, enter into the house, they bring gifts, they worship him. Herod told them, where we left off last week, Herod told them, hey, listen, when you find that kid, come back and tell me where you found him so I can go worship him too. In verse 12, Warren says that they were warned in a dream not to return to Herod. They departed to their own country by another way. That's where we left off. So pick up with me at Matthew 2. We're going to look at verses 13 through 18 because not everyone was excited about this new king of the Jews. And it led to some pretty horrendous things. Now when they had departed, the Magi, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, 
Take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, this is going back again, okay? So this is, this is, this is not completely chronological. You get this writing from 13 to 15 that tells one section of the story, and then Matthew's going to revisit another part of this story. Starting in verse 16, Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation. Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to comfort because they are no more. Herod is not a good dude. So, the part of the story you might not know is that Herod, before this moment, had three of his sons executed because he feared that they were trying to overthrow him. So he already made these horrendous choices. It seems as though Herod lived in this constant state of fear that someone was going to usurp his Now, I want to revisit something here because uh, it's important before we get into that part of it. That first part, it says when they had left, they, it, the angel of the Lord appeared now to Joseph in a dream. I, I just want to point out something about Joseph's character that gets exposed again. Is he has this dream and the angel of the Lord appears. Now, this is not something new to him. This has happened to him before, right? And every time this happens, it costs Joseph something. Picture yourself, a small business owner, carpenter. You're trying to build up a business. Most carpentry or hands-on work, you can ask these two guys sitting up front, is done by word of mouth. You do a good job for this customer, and they recommend you to other customers. And your business gets built by that, right? So for potentially around two years, Joseph has been potentially, this is Adam speaking, this is not in the text, been rebuilding his livelihood in Bethlehem as his son is being raised. Every time God told him to leave somewhere, it cost him something. He had to pack up everything he had and leave. It happened when he told he was going to be the father of Jesus. And now it's happening again. The first time it was go to the city where your ancestors are from. It doesn't sound as though, history doesn't seem to support that Joseph had had any dealings in Bethlehem his entire life. But because the census came, that's where he had to go. Now it says earlier that immediately he gets up and he goes to marry, to make Mary his wife, and then they head to Bethlehem for the census. So when he's told, no, don't divorce her, don't walk away from this, step into it, immediately he does it. 
Verse 13. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child and destroy him. Verse 14. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until Herod had died. I don't see anywhere in here, I don't see anywhere in any of Scripture where there's any moment where Joseph says, now wait a second, I have a bunch of people in my life that I trust to advise me on these big decisions, and I need to test these things by going to them and seeing what they think, and I, I know, God, you're communicating something to me, but it just doesn't sound right. It doesn't. It sounds kind of crazy, like Egypt now. I mean, I had to move here, and now you're telling me I got to go to Egypt. What's going on? And Egypt is a pagan land, God. That just doesn't seem right. It's kind, of, you know, it's kind of incongruent with God's character. It probably isn't coming from God. Maybe I just didn't think actually enough. Had a weird dream. I don't know about you, but that's where I. Where God says, hey, this is what I want you to do. This is how I want you to do it. And my natural fleshly propensity is to find reasons to convince myself that that couldn't possibly have come from God. Joseph doesn't do that. <laughs> okay, Joseph, I'm glad you're asleep. I have something I want to tell you. Herod is about to kill your son, my son. As if that's not shocking enough, what you need to do is when you wake up, you need to pack up all your stuff, get my son, your son, your wife, pack up your stuff, and go to Egypt. And you can stay there until I tell your son what you do. He wakes up, and it says, he rose and departed to Egypt. I just love Joseph and Mary's He tells him, this is the Messiah. He believes her. He tells her, God told me we have to go to Egypt. She believes him. And they together obey God. And it takes them all kinds of places. Now, potentially, most scholars believe that it may have taken the wise men upwards of two years to get from where they first saw the inclination that this Messiah was born and to get to where they got to worship him. So when it says the word child, and it says the word home, they're still in Bethlehem. They're still in the region that Herod is king over when they get to him. So most scholars believe that by the time the Magi get to this home, Jesus is probably, probably around anywhere between, well, he's no more than two, most people would say. But it definitely isn't happening in the They've started to build a little life for themselves. So I just want to point that out before we go into the next part of this. Joseph understood who God was, understood who this baby was, and he was willing to do whatever God said to make God's plan happen. Whatever part he had in it, he was willing to play. It was willing, and it cost him. Now, I'll come back to that. Like, just from an earth, I'll step away from the text here and just say, from an earthly standpoint, if you're a small business owner and you're a contractor and you're starting to build a business in uh, Bethlehem and now all of a sudden you've got to move to Egypt, do you know what they build in Egypt? 
pyramids. So Joseph probably feels a little bit out of league here, right? Okay, God, I'll build like mangers and, and who knows what Joseph built. But he's stepping into like cultural, the cultural pinnacle of construction. That's just some like seeding thought that I had. Because it doesn't seem like that was even on the table for him to process and say, this is how I make my decisions. This wasn't an economic decision. I just find that faith to be remarkable. He believed, he believed God. He didn't just believe in God, he believed God. So look at verse 15 again. It says, and he remained there until the death of Herod. And then it says, this was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet out of Egypt I called my son. Now, here, this is important. I think it's important. And hopefully you, uh, you can find yourself agreeing with me. In Hosea chapter 11, it says this. When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt I called my son. That is the scripture, that is the prophecy that Matthew is going back to. But it's a little bit different. I'm going to give you a quick explanation here. This is not Matthew saying that Hosea is all about Jesus and Jesus' birth. Contextually speaking, Hosea is really falling in this prophetic both and. He's talking about what happened once before. God is painting a picture about Israel's disobedience and lack of trust in him through the story of Hosea, through his wife, and through his people. He's going back to the Exodus. When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. So this, what this is doing is Jesus, it's pointing us back to the fact that Jesus is the better Jacob. Jesus is the better Israel. This has happened once before, right? God has called his people out of Egypt before, hasn't he? You're going to see some other parallels come up because pretty soon Jesus is going to come out of the wilderness experience and the first thing he's going to do is get baptized. When the Egyptian people, when the Israelite people came out of Egypt, the first thing that they did once they escaped that was to go through the water. There's parallels through this, and Matthew is painting a picture, I believe, that this is a revisit of what God already did in the Exodus, and he's proving to us that it's better this time. His redemption is better. It's more complete. Out of Egypt, I called my son. This points us back to the genealogy, by the way. This verse points us back to the genealogy because it says Jacob... And that's part of the line that got the story to Jesus. Jesus is the Messiah, and he goes on this similar path as the Exodus. He ends up going into Egypt until Herod dies. And God knows the wickedness in Herod's heart, and he warns Joseph. Then what we have is this. Then Herod, verse 16, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, he became furious. 
this Samson killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wife. Think about how evil you have to be to make that evil about the people you are supposed to be loving and leading. Uh, I'll take that back. I don't know how much the king was expected to love his people, but he was supposed to provide and care for them. Here's something I see stand out to me in stark contrast. Anytime you read through the Chronicles uh, or if you read through 1st uh, 2nd Kings, read through those Old Testament stories of the kings of the Old Testament, here's one thing that bounced out of me and it blares at us again right here in this verse. And it is this, God is the only good king. All other kingdoms will crumble except his. Because in the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord. Here's what we learn from Herod's story. We learn a lot, by the way. One thing we learn is this. Self-preservation usually costs someone else a great price. Self-preservation usually costs someone else a great price. Herod had this innate fear that he was going to lose something. Someone else was king. Someone else was coming to take what, was, what is rightfully mine. And he went into self-preservation mode. He already did it once before at the cost of his three, three of his own sons. One of them was his oldest son, who was the rightful heir to the throne. Some scholars have said over the years that that's hundreds upon thousands. It most likely wasn't. Census data would tell us that it's somewhere between 20 and 40 kids. That's 20 and 40 kids that lost their lives. Families that had to move on the rest of their lives with that trauma in their story. All because someone's self-preservation cost them. Tremendous, long-lasting pain. All to preserve something that really at the end of his life didn't matter. He still died. When he died, these are the stories we tell. 
Herod was a major builder, by the way. He had building campaigns. He's one that's credited with rebuilding the temple in Israel. Did you know that before this moment? No, because the thing we talk about Herod is that he killed babies and toddlers to preserve his own kingdom. Now that's heavy stuff. And that's the stuff that not necessarily we have to talk about every year at Christmas, but what we do have to realize is this is the world that God sent his son into. It's not like brokenness had a reprieve because Jesus was born. And I think that's how my mind has comprehended Christmas for far too long. Like there was just peace on earth in the way I, I, I want to see. There was no more pain. Everything was wonderful. Angels were singing and shepherds in nice clothing marched slowly into this town. And they all sang songs around a perfectly dressed woman in the most clean barn you've ever seen in your entire life. And it was a silent night. And it was so easy. And then these, these, these wise men, these kings from the east, they come in on their camels with their gold and their frankincense and their myrrh and there's basically this ceremony in a barn and you know what let's make some figurines to remember it I, I think that's what we do a few years ago we were in Barnes and Noble it's one of my kids favorite stores and uh, they had classics classic novels classic stories for sale and so Isaiah and I made a decision that we were going to buy a classic and then read it together. And when we were done, we'd watch the movie. So we started with Swiss Family Robinson. We read it. And I remember there being like 11 chapters of them just walking around the island. And they didn't find anything. And I, remember I said to Isaiah, this isn't in the Terribly boring. Like, if it's in the movie, there's tree houses that are awesome, and they they like make they make bombs out of coconuts. It's amazing. Like that's what, so basically what I was doing. So then we read Twenty Thousand Leagues Under the Sea. Same kind of thing. I kind of muscled through, and then that was it. Then we bought updated versions of them, and then we'd read the movie. We'd watch the movies. And here's what I realized. I don't want to know the full story. I want you to tell me the story I want to hear because I want to be entertained. I don't want to read Swiss Family Robinson. Actually, I find it quite boring. And at times depressing. Not exciting. But the movies are not long. And the story of uh, King Arthur Knights of the Round Table. That's the one Isaiah wouldn't make it. Maybe four chapters into that one. And we were like, nah. I was like, you really like this book? It works. But how many movies have been made about King Arthur and Knights of the Round Table? And we've probably seen them. But if I ask for a show of hands, I either read the books, or if you've seen the Lord of the Rings movies and never read the books. You know how many people I've talked to that are like, oh, yeah, I started trying to read the books. This is, I told them it was crazy. 
tell me big words, and I just want to hear it. That's what we do with God's word. We want someone to package it up in a way that makes me feel like I understand it, and I've been entertained, and now I can leave and retell that version of the story to somebody else and be a good Christian. I don't know about you, but when I put myself in that reality, it's super convicting. Could you imagine going into Bethlehem the year after this happened and say, hey, we're going to put up a tree and celebrate Jesus was born last year. We're going to celebrate the birth of the one kid who didn't die. How would that go over with the grief-stricken families that were just one year in to losing something that they treasured? All because one man feared that someone was trying to take his kingdom away from him. And it led to unspeakable pain and long-lasting effect, generational pain. Lasting king replaced. And church, this isn't the last time that someone is going to be threatened by Jesus' kingship and tries to murder him. This is not the last time that this happens to Jesus. This is not the last time that this happens to the people who are indwelled with the spirit of the living God. And here's what the conclusion has to be. I'm either building my kingdom or building his kingdom. But I am most definitely building something. And so are you. You and I are either building his kingdom or we're building our kingdom. But if we're building our kingdom and someone tries to threaten, someone tries to undermine, someone tries to take something from us that we've worked so hard to build, you better guarantee I'm going to at all costs. And that is the core starting point of the reason. I don't know if you know this or not, but as a church, one of the benefits you provide for me is you pay for me to meet with a biblical counselor. I meet with a professional counselor uh, once a month, and uh, part of what you also provide is that benefit to be reciprocated to my dear wife. What I can say two resounding words. Because I spent 40 years trying to keep the lid on that bottle. And then I sit down with this sweet woman who walks me through scripture and psychology at the same time, and that lid came flying off, and I was like, oh no, 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 Let's put it back on. But I am a better person because I've realized and wrestled with that garbage. I've seen Jesus in parts of my life that I chose to hide and bury for a long time. And what I'm realizing more and more and more is that Herod isn't uncommon. What he did is uncommon, but him, not uncommon. I would bet that every one of us has a hidden in our hearts. Someone who felt like we were undermining his kingdom and they tried to take our legs out. 
of building our own kingdom. It's not God's kingdom. If we're over here building our own kingdom, we will either feel like we are the king of other people's kingdoms, or we're subservient to somebody else's kingdom. And then we'll let those people control us. We'll let those people dictate our decisions. We'll let those people dictate our expectations. We'll let those people tell us what we should do and what we shouldn't do. I don't have any record in scripture or in history that says one soldier, not one soldier was willing to stand in front of Herod and say, I will not do this. You're a coward. I will not kill a baby because you feel inferior. Every one of them took the order and did it. Because they were being, they were being loyal to their king. This is heavy stuff. That's why I started with joy. Because I can't change the reality that we're living in. Yours or mine. All I can do is get a perspective check and make sure that I'm working really hard to build his kingdom. When even Jesus taught us to pray, he said, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Even Jesus was reminding himself and teaching us to remind ourselves every time we pray, build his kingdom. We have a better Jesus is better than you. He's better than me. He's better than anything you feel like you have to be subservient to here in this world. He's better than whatever you're, you think you're building for yourself. And if you don't think you're building a kingdom, now I say praise the Lord, but do yourself a favor and introspectively ask yourself, what would I do if I felt like this was being taken? How would I respond? How would I the weight of building or preserving our own kingdoms. Why? Because Jesus is better. I want to read you something I read at the beginning. In 1 Peter 1, starting in verse 3, he says this. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice. Though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes through it, is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, 
You love him, though you do not see him. Now see him. You believe in him and rejoice with joy that is unexpressible and filled with glory in obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. That's our king. Nowhere in there are we promised rainbows and butterflies. I think we have days on our calendar that feel like a reprieve. Last night we sat on the couch and just were overjoyed with how our day went. We didn't want the kids to go to bed last night. We wanted them up with us. We, we didn't want the day to end. Sometimes you get a reprieve from the reality around you. I hope you can all trust believe in that, whether it was yesterday or today or the days ahead. And as followers and lovers of Jesus, we get to look at those moments as reminders of a coming glory when there will be no more tears, no more disappointment, no more pain, no more hurt, no more, no more living under tyrannical control of anyone else. No more feeling like we always have to meet somebody else's expectations. No more feeling like a failure or disappointment when things don't go our way. Because in that day, he will wipe every tear from every eye. And he who sits on the throne says, Behold, I make all things new. And he said unto me, Write these words, for they are faithful and true. yelled out to the masses, it is finished. You know what was finished? You happened to carry the weight of your own sin. That's what was finished on the cross. And you know what's going to be done? All the weight. Being so infected by pride, by pride and worry, do you think 
someone's going to take your crown, do you kill babies and toddlers? That's not us. That's not us. Because even though we do not see him, we believe in him, and we rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith. The outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Church, you can choose joy. You can take the crown off of yourself and you can lay it at the foot of the cross. And you can crown him with all the glory. And he's going to do a much better job of governing your life than you ever could or I ever could. Man, I can't imagine rounding out another year feeling Feeling like Herod at all. He had me thinking he was a miserable guy. Let's choose joy. And let's crown him Lord of all. God, thank you for this beautiful reality. Your promise. We don't have to live under it. We get to live under the promise, not the curse. Where one time we were in enmity with you. We were your enemies, but God, rich in mercy, while we were still sinners, sent his son to die for us. We get to live in the inexpressible joy, the inexhaustible joy that cannot be taken from us as we lay our crowns at your feet and live under your reign, under your rule, with a desire to build your kingdom. We pray that this afternoon.
from the dead, our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. See you next year. Yes. <laughs>